Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show and an episode from The Vaults. That's right, with nearly 500 episodes under our belts, I thought we could revisit some of the conversations from The Emma Gunn Show archive that really resonated with you, but that also cover topics that are central to this podcast, a hunger for knowledge, positivity, overcoming obstacles, and striving to be the best version of ourselves. If you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you may remember when this episode was first published. You may even have listened first time around. But I'm aware that new people find the show all the time and with hundreds of episodes in the back catalogue, it can be quite the task to catch up. So for this series, I'm bumping these conversations to the top of the feed. My guest in this episode of the podcast is world-renowned speaker, rapid transformational therapy trainer and best-selling author Marissa Peer. Marissa has 30 years of experience as a therapist, hypnotherapist and psychotherapist. And I wanted to revisit this conversation on this From the Vault series because this episode had a really profound effect on me, but it also is an episode I hear time and time again from listeners, that's you, has really changed your lives or should I say more accurately, has contained the prompts, guidance and insight that has allowed you to make the changes needed to improve the situation that you were in, that you wanted to change. I personally, I remember visiting Marissa's house to record this episode and afterwards being honestly in a bit of a trance and sitting in my car and buying all her books immediately on my phone in the driving seat, obviously, not with the car turned on or anything like that. And I've joked since that I think I was hypnotised during our conversation because everything made complete sense and I felt completely reassured. And this, dear listener, is significant because at the time of recording this, I was in the depths of my own battle with depression and anxiety and was, to put it lightly, struggling. As significant as this conversation with Marissa was for me and the subsequent reading I did and hypnosis tapes of hers that I followed, I know that her advice has also really resonated with many of you. And so for those of you who may need to hear it again, for those who didn't hear it the first time around, or for anyone who needs to feel as though change is possible, I really recommend tuning into what Marissa has to say. One teeny bit of housekeeping. The podcast has come a long way since 2017 and this episode was originally published in January uh, 2017 but I recorded it um, the month before in December 2016. 
But it's come a long way, the show has, especially when it comes to the equipment I use to record conversations, internet calls since COVID not included. And this conversation was recorded with my old kit, so it's a little echoier than you might be used to. It wasn't quite as sophisticated as the microphone setup that I have now when I do my recordings in person. However, I have tinkered with it in post-production, post-production so it is much clearer than when I originally published it, in fact, but I'm flagging it just so you're aware. I've put the links to Marissa, whose website is a really wonderful resource if you're curious about learning more or even becoming a therapist yourself. And honestly, when I left, I just said to her, I think I want to do what you do. I didn't, but there we go. But I'm really excited to bring Marissa back to the show. So here she is, Marissa Peer on The Emma Gunn Show. There's absolutely no doubt where I am today because I'm sitting in this beautiful living room of this wonderful guest home and I'm looking up at the large uh, mirror over the fireplace and I can see written in lipstick with a love heart next to it, I am enough, which means that I must be in the front room of the wonderful, world-famous Marissa Peer. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being on the show. You're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Now, do we know what colour that is? How long has that been up there? Oh, a long time. It's probably faded. Um, I must redo it. I should show my bathroom mirror upstairs before you go, because in my top bathroom, I've got it written in every language, in, in Russian, we're going to have a quick look before you leave, in French, in Italian, in, um, in Creole, in, in every language. So, um, And it's a concept that's really at the core of um, what you do, yeah. what you really share with people, mm. this idea, I'm just saying to you, I've spent hours watching you on mm. YouTube, and... It makes such good sense. Mm. And one of the things I think I took away, um, I've been watching the videos over and over again, and one of the things you said was, we never actually in school teach people what esteem means, Mm. and it means how much I like myself. Yeah, when you say I hold that person in the highest esteem, and people think it means how much other people like you, but it really doesn't. It's how much you like you. And, of course, we also don't teach people that until you like you, nothing matters. If you look at Amy Winehouse or Whitney Houston or Philip Seymour Hoffman or Heath Ledger, with everything they had, the thing they didn't have was that self-worth. And if you haven't got that, then everything you have got is just worthless. Mm. Do you feel, I've talked to previous guests about this, about the age of social media, do you feel like it's even harder to find that sense of self-esteem now that you can be... Inundated with all I these. think what social media has done is done a lot of good things. You know, my mum could go and Skype her grandchildren and, and speak to her relatives in Canada. But the bad thing is that overexposure to what we see as perfection. So now we look at magazines and, you know, there isn't a part of a woman's body left. There's the thigh gap, the bikini bridge. I mean, it's just relentless. And I think it makes women very dissatisfied with their bodies. They look at perfect bodies that aren't really like that at all. Mm. I mean, as so many of my clients are supermodels and actresses, and in the flesh, they don't look anything like they look on screen. They're small, tiny. and um, But it's this belief that everyone else is prettier, with better skin and higher, rounder breasts than you. And it's just not true. But I think the media... That there is a, it, it is damaging a younger generation because they believe they've got to live up to that. Whereas my generation, we just had magazines. Mm. We didn't know what. Um, no one did um, Hollywood waxing and Tiffany waxing. It's like oh, we just had a bit of a shave. <laughs> but girls now they can't even have pubic hair anymore mm. because that that whole 
it's become a sort of colloquial, no, it's not acceptable, and, and they feel that pressure to be perfect. And, mm. of course, people go through Facebook and they pick out the best picture where they just look amazing, but everyone else says they look like that all the time, and, of course, they don't. It's true, isn't it? Do you, um, do you think it's harder to find uh, self-esteem nowadays? Do you think that because of the comparison, I read somewhere comparison is the thief of joy but um i think it's hard if you compare yourself looks wise you know that's why if you look at someone like jennifer saunders you know she's always going to be happy because people love her because she's funny Mm. they've never loved jennifer because of what she looked like and therefore that never goes away but when people like you because of what you look like you're really in a taxi with a meter running and the other thing that magazines do now which i really don't like is they this, there was a picture recently of Naomi Campbell with a little bit of sticking plaster on, on here. And they highlighted a serpent and go, oh, look, you know, look, this person's got cellulite. Look, they've got downy hair on their lip. Look, they've got um, spinach on their teeth. Mm-hmm. And, and so magazines now go to great lengths to shame women for being normal. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't like that because then it makes people feel this pressure. It's like, you know, when Madonna was pregnant many years ago, I remember she'd gone out in a leopard skin cardigan and someone had a paper had gone, oh my God, look at Madonna. I mean, isn't that pathetic? She's got to wear leopard skin even when she's pregnant. But of course, if she went out in some tatty old thing, they go, well, look at Madonna, now she's pregnant. She she's doesn't look sexy at all. So you really can't win mm. when you're in the public eye. You can't win. Mm. If you look amazing, they say, why don't you ever have a day off? And if you have a day off, they go, oh, so you don't really look amazing after mm. all. And then, of course, we hear about people like Kyne West having a breakdown. But when you live your life in the public eye, I mean, I had to go and see a client once. It was the funniest. Well, it wasn't funny. It was actually terribly sad. So she sent her driver to pick me up in, in Alderley Edge in Cheshire, and I got in the car. And we started driving. I don't know where she lived. And all of a sudden, I saw this house with a wall. And there were cameramen three deep around every wall on ladders. And I said, that's her house. He went, how did you know? I said, I just knew. Anyway, as, as we drove in, all the, they all ran up to me. Of course, I'm not important. So they took a few pictures and didn't know who I was. I'm sure they deleted them when they realized I wasn't famous. And I went in her house. And I'm like, how can you live like this? I mean, this is just a goldfish bowl. I mean, every inch of your garden wall has got press up there. She's there, there all day. And um, I don't know how anyone could live like that. It's just horrible. Well, this leads into one of the big things that I keep coming back to, partly because it resonates with me personally as well, Mm -hmm. but the idea of not letting it in. And I think Mm. um, don't let in opinions that will hurt you. Mm. I think we're all quite susceptible to that. Sure. Um, How can people build that resilience? Well, first of all, we are as a as people very very damaged by rejection we, we got this real fragile thing. if you reject me if you hurt me if you give my photo on facebook horrible marks if you go oh there's like a dating site now where you go on and all the other people have to decide whether you're beautiful enough to join oh, yeah. but you see why rejection hurts us is because years ago when we lived in tribes tribes understood that if you didn't conform they banished you you know we all know that difficult sailors got marooned difficult prisoners got put in isolation there are still um cultures like uh 
and religious cults where they banish you from the sect, like the Quakers, if, if you don't behave. And naughty children still get sent to their rooms. So we, in our psyche, understand, oh... If you reject me, I could die, because in Romeo and Juliet, when they banished him, he said, well, I'd rather be killed, frankly, because when you banish me to outside the city walls, there's nothing out there but purgatory. So we have a belief that I will die if you reject me. And the truth is, you won't. You won't die. Probably be the best thing that ever happened to you. I'm sure Catherine Zeta-Jones goes around and goes, oh, God, thank you so much that John Leslie rejected me and (laughs) Angus McFadden, because then I went to Hollywood feeling very rejected and married Michael Douglas, and now I'm Hollywood royalty. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So rejection can be the best thing that ever happened to us, but we still feel, (gasps) I might die if you reject me. So you've got to get into perspective. Yes, this guy rejected me. Yeah, I was fired in front of everyone in a store or an office, but so what? You know, people move on. And it's it's a dialogue about not letting it in. You see, somebody can say the most horrible thing to you, but if you don't let it in, mm. it can't hurt you. You get to choose. Like if I said to you, I don't like you because I can't stand people with green hair, you couldn't possibly let that in because it's not true. But we let stuff in. People say, you're mean, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're boring. And we let it in and we hold on to it. When the person that said that, they're often just having a bad day. And many times I work with girls who've been bullied, who go back at school and find the bully and go up and say, you know, you ruined my life. They're like, really? Oh, I just was having fun. And one of them said, but I was so jealous of you. You had everything. And so I just felt so jealous. I had no idea. But children suffer terribly with rejection. And, you know, when you have babies, I mean, they put their hand on the hip and go, I hate you. All my friends' mothers are better than you. You know, even in your own home, there it is. But it's up to you to decide. You know, my I took my daughter the other day, Susan, she was so off in the car, but then I knew she had a headache. And I said, well, I don't have to let this in. She's in pain. People in pain lash out. She mm. doesn't, she's not really like that. She's just feeling in pain. So you got to learn that when people have a bad day, they they say and do mean things. That's their choice. But your choice is whether you let it in mm-hmm. or not. And you never have to let it in. It seems easier said than done. But then I've listened to more of your talks and you talk about this dialogue with your brain. Yeah. And how... it, it And it, you can say... I'm In Pretty Woman, there's yeah. a scene with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere in the bath. Mm. and he finally says I was very angry at him and he's talking about his dad and he makes yeah. a comment that took however many years of therapy and however many thousand dollars mm-hmm. and so there's almost this idea that if you want to make changes it will take time and it will be expensive mm. but what I gather from everything that I've read about you is that no it can happen quickly well the thing with, with I mean I've been seeing clients for 30 years and, and because I'm very lucky that I do see kind of clients of the Julia Roberts category the, the movie star rather than the street walker but um, I've seen those too um, you get to realise quickly that there's only really three problems people have the biggest one is I'm not enough I'm not smart enough I'm not pretty enough I'm not successful enough or rich enough and you get people who've got all of that and they still think no but I need more so I'm enough is the biggest problem people have the second problem is what I want isn't available to me I want love but I've never had love therefore it isn't available I want success my whole family are bus drivers so how could I ever be anything or you know I want a man to love him my dad rejected me so therefore I can't be lovable 
And the third one, which is interesting, is his belief that I'm so different, I can't connect. Because, of course, again, that tribal thing is that we connect by being the same. You know, when you see little kids with a I like postman pat, I like postman pat, I love SpongeBob, oh, so do I. I like pasta, I like pasta. Oh, you're my best friend. <laughs> and then when you date, you go, do you like um, Gogglebox? Oh, I love it. Oh, so do I. And we, we connect with people who are the same. So when you feel different, it's very hard to connect. It, and um, so that's what my clients come up with. I'm not enough. Um, what I want isn't available and I'm so different I can't connect so if someone came into me and said look um, I eat too much and I smoke and I drink and then I every now and again I go on these wild spending things when I'm down I go and buy like six Joe Malone candles and I've already got three but I don't treat any of that I look at the core of that oh you don't think you're enough compulsive shopping compulsive eating compulsive drinking, um, all of that stuff. There's just one reason you don't feel enough. Or people who say, you know, every time I date someone, I I act up until they dump me or I dump them, even though I long to be in love and then I keep getting fired at work. It's the same thing again. Oh, you don't think you're enough, so you've got to earn something. But because you feel not worth it, you then reject it. And so because I always treat the core of someone's issue, so what we would call the presenting problem. Here's my problem. Can you fix it? I don't treat that. I treat the underlying thing, which is nearly always I'm not enough. I'll also, of course, at the same time, look, yes, stop drinking. I can stop you smoking. I can stop you mainlining Pringles every time you're stressed. (laughs) But I do it all at the same time. And it really works. (laughs) Yeah, it works because if you, you see every habit of action is run by a habit of thought. The habit of action is eating loads of galaxies when you've had a bad day. But there's a thought there that goes, I need these to feel better. These make me happy. And if you keep taking away the action but leave the thought process intact, people go back. But if you change the thought, that's why no vegan ever says, oh, God, you know, so hard to resist Greg's or... Every time I go past those bacon sandwiches, I've got to fight not to go in and buy them because their habit of thought and action is the same. I couldn't eat something that once lived. Mm. That's not right or wrong. It just works because their belief is so lined up with the action. But I find that most people have actions and beliefs that are so completely contradictory. I love food, but I mustn't eat it. I love chocolate. I'm not allowed to have it. I shouldn't drink, but, oh, my God, it gives me the confidence when I go out to talk to people. So you see, one of the rules of the mind is your mind can't hold conflicting beliefs. So straightening people out is really simple if you understand how their mind works. And so I, years ago, sort of was able to hack the brain down to three things because that's all you need to know about it. And then I teach my clients that, and then then they tend to have everything. And you've said before as well that the way the difference in the brains of the people who perhaps come to you um, for the first time versus the people who seem to have it all. And I know you've mentioned Mm. Richard Branson a couple of times. Mm. Um, The changes are quite subtle, but the the brains do work differently. Yeah, there's not much difference between someone who doesn't have everything and someone who has everything. It's actually little things. It's, It's their belief system and a few little habits that they have, and anyone can acquire those beliefs, and anyone can acquire those habits. So just because somebody was born with a natural habit of success and you weren't, that doesn't mean you can't embrace that habit and make it your own, because you can. Mm. 
I think um, I've spoken about this with a previous guest about how there's almost this um, somewhat British, somewhat female um, habit of not saying when you've done well. Yeah. Or that it's arrogant to say, I look really good tonight. I know. Is that part of the struggle with yeah, the I am like, not enough? If you're an American, I say to someone, I love your jeans, you go, yeah, look at my boots, aren't they amazing? And this jacket, and they really let in praise, whereas... In England, if you say to someone, I love your jacket, they have it and say, well, I got it in Primark, it only cost £4. Or, oh, I've had it for six years, got a hole in it. And and they not only do they reject the praise, they add in mm. criticism. Now, I was in Spain last year, and I noticed that every time I said to the waiter that, you go, narada or nanada, and it means don't mention it. And eventually I said, well, given that you're waiting <laughs> on me in a 100-degree heat, I think I should mention it. <laughs> And when I give you praise, don't keep saying nanada, which means don't mention it, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. But it's like here, people do that too. Oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Don't mention it. I'm like, mention it. Mention it. Let in praise. Mm -hmm. Praise yourself. When people say, you did a great job, don't go, oh, that was a fluke. I don't know how I pulled that off. People say to me, I love your books. I go, yeah, I love writing them. They're great, aren't Mm -hmm. they? And I don't think that's arrogant, because when I went, oh, they're not very good. I mean, did you see the first chapter? That was so amateur. I kind of got better by chapter six, because I learned what to do. But the first bit is terrible. And I work with many, many actors and actresses and writers, and I really have to teach them to accept praise, to start by going, thank you. And then later to go, yeah, I love doing that film too. Yeah, that was great, that movie. I love playing that part. Or, yeah, thanks, that's my favourite outfit too. It's my favourite colour. Because we have this belief that accepting praise is really arrogant. But, mm. you know, praise is, is the way you build self-esteem. Nothing will build your self-esteem like praise. But when you depend on other people to praise you, it doesn't work because you become needy. But when you praise yourself and go, I look great in this. I did a good job. I'm a really warm person. I'm nice. I'm funny. I'm kind. When you say it, it goes right in. You know, we've all gone to the shop with this and goes, oh my God, you look so awesome in that. And you really should have the bag and the shoes. And you know <laughs> that their agenda is not what you look like, but how much they can sell you. It's like your boss saying, you know, you are indispensable to this company. Oh my God. You're the best PA ever. By the way, could you work on the weekend? I mean, it's like, okay, I've got to do that now. So we know about agenda. But when you praise yourself, there is no agenda. It goes straight in. And so you should praise yourself more. Which I put into practice. Yeah. So recently I've injured myself. So I'm not able to work out in the way that I was a few months ago. Yeah. And I walk every day for a minimum of an hour. I build it into my day. But I've been leaving the house going... I want to be doing something else. Yeah. So today I went out and I was like, this is really good that you're going for a walk, Emma. Well done. And I tried to change that dialogue yeah. in my head. And not that it was necessarily important, but I walked my fastest time mm-hmm. since I started doing it. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, there is something in that, isn't there? Well, there's a lot in it because one of the ways the mind works, and one of the things that's very important to know about your mind, is it does what it thinks you really want it to do, and it really does what it believes is in your very, very best interest. If you go to the gym going, oh my God, I hate the gym. Oh, this is so boring. I could be at home now watching TV, or I could be out with my friends, and oh, I hate the Stairmaster. I hate these lunges. I hate these sit-ups. Because your mind's job is to keep you alive on the planet against what were really high odds. It always looks for what you don't like and then tries to stop you doing it. Because that's how we survive. 
And so going to the gym or telling yourself you hate it, deciding to eat healthy, going, oh my God, this rabbit food is boring and I've got to eat apples now and not cake and it's not the same. Your brain is going to keep now making more and more resistance because its job is to move you away from anything that causes you pain because you survive on the planet by Mm. avoiding what causes you pain. And how you reverse it is to go, I love sit-ups. My stomach loves sit-ups. My butt loves lunges. My legs love walking. Because even if it's not true, if you say it enough, it becomes true. And if you decide to start your own startup, while going, oh, my God, I've got to spend every weekend working. I've got to spend all Sunday building a website. Oh, I'm dreading it. This is so boring. You'll find all of a sudden you have an overwhelming urge to tidy up your sock drawer, put all the forks the right way, and do anything but what you've allocated your work into because you keep saying, I don't want to do it. Whereas if you start to go, wow, I love working on my website this week, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than sitting here working on this website, building my company, developing my startup. Your brain believes it. Because if you look at marines who run through mud and rain, they sing. And when they sing, the brain goes, oh, okay, you're running through rain and mud and snow. You've got a backpack on your back with half your body weight on you. Apparently, you've got a miner's light strapped to your head because it's pitch black, but you're singing. I know why you're singing. You like this. (laughs) And that's why singing is such a great thing because it sends a message to you. So if you ever have to have an injection or a painful procedure, just singing tells your brain, oh, you like it because you have so much choice. Well, shall I mention the black eyed peas at this point? Yeah, sure. And the fact that you broke broke your arm. Yeah. When it came out of the cast, it was a a very small, um, narrow angle. Yeah, it was like an L. Yeah. yeah, and you had um, had to go through some pretty serious physiotherapy. Yeah, I did. But I think the physiotherapist said at the end, I don't know anyone else who, who's actually stuck yeah. in it. Most people quit halfway through. Yeah. He said, I don't know how you did it. And I said, you do, because I sang, I had that song by the Black Eyed Peas, Let's Get It Started in here. And I keep saying, I want a straight arm. I want, so I was getting married at the time and there's no way I'm walking down the aisle with one of my arms in a permanent L shape and I do yoga and how am I going to do the warrior with one arm bent? So I wanted that and I said to my brain, I want this, whatever it takes, I want it. And of course, when he began, my brain's like, you really want this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I want it, I want it, I want it. Because of course, masochists tell their brain, oh, I want that pain. It's so <laughs> exciting. I want someone to drip candle wax on me or hit me and some people do like pain I'm not one of them personally but having worked with people that have these weird um, beliefs it's like bodybuilders will really and endurance athletes it hurts when they're doing that amount but they say I want it when they're lifting those weights and, and running for 26 miles and swimming in, in water that's really cold they don't go oh I don't like it they have to keep going I want it want it want it love it love it love it so my own patients were my were my teacher and I knew that if I kept telling my brain I wanted it I'd have a straight arm and I did but when my doctor said I don't know how you did it I said you do know and you should teach all your other patients the same thing tell your mind you want it it's like giving birth you know women who get very stressed and anxious make cortisol and the whole birth is slowed down and yet farmers will statistically have the easiest births on the planet because they see it all the all time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of cortisol, that's another topic that comes up again and again in the show. Um, 
do you do you see lots more people are coming to you with problems that are um, tangled up in stress yeah oh yeah so infertility that's very tangled up in stress um performance anxiety that's huge people who really want to go for an interview or really want to chair a meeting or even give a little ted talk or you know they've maybe written a blog and they want to go on the radio and discuss it but when it comes to it they can't open their mouth because the the greatest fear we have is the fear of being judged so when it comes to speaking in public that's a big fear and of course the more nervous you are the more your brain empties again that primitive mind thinks if you're nervous there must be a tiger somewhere so better send all the blood from your brain to your um, heart and lungs so you can run and that's why when you're nervous you forget everything you know I remember years ago coming home and I lived in a basement and I knew this man was following me and I was trying to get down my steps but I couldn't remember how to turn my key so I have all the days to forget but I because I was so scared and in the end I had to really get myself together and pull away from the door and just stand with my back right against the shadows so that and he did come halfway down the steps and he obviously thought I'd gone in the house and he just went away again but I, I didn't understand why I couldn't get the door open. I'd lived in that house for five years. I knew you put the key in and turned it left, but I was so nervous I kept turning it right. Because when you're nervous, your brain empties. and so. But, the, but if you fill up your mouth with saliva and swirl it around, it, it, that's what happens when you're calm and relaxed. That's why kissing is so good for you because it, a wet mouth sends a sign to your body that you're really, really relaxed. Why people in court, and that's why look court lawyers drink water. All that is why immigration officers and store detectives look for people who are licking their lips. A dry mouth means you're nervous. A wet mouth means you're really, really relaxed. And so when I'm working with people who are really scared of speaking, I say, look, just fill up your mouth with saliva and sing a little song. I love it. I love it. This girl is on fire. I'm having the time of my life. It doesn't matter what the song is, but. How the brain works is very simple. It responds to two things, the pictures you make in your head and the words you say to yourself. There's actually nothing else. That's why you could let a little ladybird land on your hand but not a dung beetle or a cockroach. It's why you could probably have a butterfly but not a moth because when the picture's different, we feel different. Like we might have a caterpillar on our hand but not a slimy old worm. Mm. And it's why many people can stroke a little hamster but not a rat. Yeah. They can touch a guinea pig. But it's why we can eat lamb but we don't eat cat or dog because the picture's so wrong. But that's very good news when you understand that your brain, every minute of every day, responds to the words and pictures and nothing else. You can change them. And when you change the words and pictures, it kind of changes everything. I think um, for years now, quite a few of my friends have picked up the secret mm. and I read it and I, I I didn't it just didn't sit with me it just, yeah it was oil and water and it was only since watching these videos of you actually I, I really began to understand I'm not suggesting that it's the same thing um unless you feel it is yeah well the secret is okay the problem is it doesn't mention the work it says manifest a millionaire manifest a beautiful house a beautiful body but it does require you getting off the sofa mm. and going out to a bar or the gym. 
And so I think a lot of people got a bit confused with the Stephen. So I can just sit in the house and I can manifest anything. So people say to me, I'm going to be a millionaire. And I go, oh, what are you going to do? And they go, well, I don't know. I'm going to be a millionaire. I go, no, you need to decide what you will do to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. What are you going to offer? What are you going to write or invent or produce? Because anything that's significant requires something of you. Mm-hmm. And so or people say, I'm going to attract a millionaire husband. I say, well, what, what, have you, what are you bringing to the table? <laughs> they go, what have I got to bring? I said, sure. <laughs> you know, a millionaire husband's got a lot of choice. So mm-hmm. they're not going to turn up at your door and go, hey, millionaire husband is here. But the secret does let people down in the way that it doesn't add in a crucial factor, which is effort. You see, I'm a great believer that belief without talent will take you further than talent without belief you don't have to look at Jedward to see that that works (laughs) but if you have talent and belief you become unstoppable so some people have a belief and no talent but they can do incredibly well we see that on Mm -hmm. shows like X Factor where they have the novelty where we saw it with um, Honey G I mean I didn't see any talent there but there was an interesting belief but Mm -hmm. that will take you quite a long way But if you have talent and no belief, you often don't go anywhere. But when you have both, well, that opens a lot of doors. But you have to have belief and talent, but you also need to have some hard work. It's like if you think, I'm going to be a famous actor, I'm going to manifest being a movie star. That does require also getting an agent and going to some auditions and getting yourself into shape. And I'm always amazed when I watch X Factor because you see people who... They auditioned in the summer and and they're coming around to judges' houses by now it's winter and it's like, oh, you didn't get into shape. You didn't go to the gym or get a bit of style advice or you see some that really do mm. and others that don't. And that's a great shame. But people, that's because they think, well, I do, I'll just manifest it all. Which I think is why The Secret did, I just, all I think about when I think of The Secret is manifesting Manolo Blahniks, which is, is vapid. Yeah silly as, as anything but in terms of the effort um, some people need their hand held and obviously yeah. you do work with people and yeah. do that but um, how would you help somebody plot that path towards where they want to be well, it's like if someone came to me and said they were ill like say someone said to me I've got cancer and I've done the secret and it said I can manifest one. So, well, you, you probably can, but you also now have to take supplements. You've got to have a sugar-free diet. You've got to get all your mobile phones out of the bedroom. And you've got to use cosmetics that haven't got any parabens in them. And then you will be cancer, if you're lucky. But if you still um, use cosmetics full of parabens and eat masses of sugar and drink and smoke, you probably aren't going to be cancer because responsibility means an ability to respond mm. Where what are you doing? You know, you have to take it seriously. If you want to meet a great guy, it's no point going to yoga. You've got to go in the weight room, and that's where men are. You know, yeah, go to and you don't sit at home reading the Sunday papers. Go and sit in Starbucks. Mm-hmm. In a, go to a car wash. Go to a golf club. Go and join a poker school. You will meet a great guy, but you've also got to put yourself right in front of great guys. Mm-hmm. Or how will they know where you are? And people miss that bit. They think, oh, I just manifest it. <laughs> it's not quite that easy. I mean, I work with infertile women. They don't even have sex with their husbands. It's like, well, you know, you do have to have sex. 
to also, but they, they're so busy, they're both in the city, they've got these stressful jobs, they leave the house at five, they come back at eight, they're, but, but how are you going to make a baby? It's extraordinary. Mm. Well, also, we touched on this earlier about being banished. Yeah. And um, the, the threat of rejection, but... Um, Every time I look at a newspaper at the moment, there's all these developments going up where there's almost like these shoebox-style apartments for people who are living by themselves because there's this culture of Mm. it not happening. Yeah, and well, it's like, um, wasn't it... Was it Google? It might not have been Google, but there was a company last year that was offering egg freezing for their women employees. It's like, how about offering nurseries? <laughs> wow, you know, they're actually saying, we'll pay for you to freeze your eggs so that, you know, you can commit to work. And then when you're 40, you've got all these frozen eggs and now you can have a family after all. But it'd be much smarter if they actually gave them better working hours and provided nurseries so they could bring their babies to work. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, we are doing that. We're... We're making life, um, it's okay to be single. Whereas, you know, in every tribe, that was a punishment, you know. Separate, it's like, you know, when I used to live in a village and we had two swans, one of them died, there was a whole campaign to get another one. If you went to the RSPC and said, I want a dog and I'm out of there, they go, you can't have one. Mm. They need company. You can't take a dog home and leave it out alone from all day. But we do that to ourselves. Mm. We live in these little apartments and we shop online and we get our groceries delivered and then we go to the gym with our headphones on and we sit on the train in our a laptop and we get on the plane and we're on our iPad and you see that at like dinners now where everyone's got their phone or that I, I know they're going to the cinema now the minute the lights are everyone gets their phone out and so we are creating a world where people are disengaging instead of engaging and it's very sad mm. because the thing that makes us really, really happy is our relationships with other people. That's the number one thing that makes you happy, being with other people. Is disengaging allowing people to um, focus less on liking themselves? Because if you're focused on that, and yeah. you work on that from, from listening to your other talks, then going out and engaging would be a lot easier because you'd be coming from a place of confidence and yeah. feeling good about that. But if there are chinks in your internal armour, so yeah. Well, if you walk into, well, I know I keep talking about dating, but if you walk, in, walk into a bar thinking, I really want to meet a guy, I never meet men, and they don't like me, and what's wrong with me? That energy, people pick up your mm. energy, it radiates out from you and back to you like a magnet. And so that that disengages you, whereas what's ironic is the minute you meet someone and they're all over, you go, oh, I just rang to hear your voice because you're the best. And you, you walk out going, oh, my God, I just rang to hear my voice. And four other guys will hit on you because <laughs> now you have the energy mm. of somebody really, really attractive. And you've got to get the energy up front. So when you do spend too much time alone, the biggest problem is it becomes so normal. You know, the brain also loves what is familiar. And anything that is familiar, we keep recreating. And if you spend too much time alone, um, it becomes normal. So whenever my husband goes away, I really miss him for three days. And then I get so used to it, I don't miss him. I just, oh, this is great. I can watch my own show and don't have to make dinner. And I can sit in bed reading all night. And I'm going, turn the light off. (laughs) And um, But I realize that's not good, that I get used to it too quickly. And um, when I used to go visit my mother who lived alone, I'd always feel so sad. But I also realized that it was so familiar to her Mm -hmm. that 
after a while she was wanting to go back to her own place and be by herself because it was familiar but you've got to be very careful not to make stuff that isn't good for you familiar mm. um, that whole uh, negative dialogue as well I really wanted to talk about um, 2016 with you actually yeah and know that we're in the final stretch and everywhere I look people are saying oh will 2016 be over already 2016's been a horrible year and it does make me clench my jaw when people say that because it when people were saying that back in the summer yeah it meant six months of attaching this very mm. negative connotation to the rest yeah. of the year um and that's what you've talked about in your talks but on a much bigger scale mm. have you heard that and um yeah but you know joy and pain are like the move of a cloth they go together it's like you have a baby and it might get ill you have children and when they're little they're amazing when they're teenagers they cause you a lot of grief but 2016 has also been an amazing year. We got a woman prime minister, a second one. Nearly had a woman in America. We didn't, but she was the second. She came very close, and probably the next prime president there will be a woman. And you know, you have to look at what's good about it as well. I mean, it was a bit weird with Brexit, and it was certainly weird with um, Donald Trump. But lots of great things happened in 2016 mm. as well. And you got to remember too that your problem is someone else's fantasy dream i mean if you live in the yemen they don't even get to elect who's in charge so whatever you think your problem is it's someone else's fantasy so and you have to learn to look at what's good you know because the the thing with the mind is whatever you focus on it it believes so Mm -hmm. it's like if you focus on pain it becomes more painful if you focus on grief you feel sadder and so even in 2016 it's very important to look back and go what was good about Mm. it what was great about it and the thing that is not was not good was the uncertainty i think donald trump getting in made people very nervous and i can see why but when you're in an uncertain world you've got to just focus on you what's this what's certain well i've got a great job a great wife great kids and that isn't going to change Mm. and who knows you know often the worst thing you think will ever happen doesn't happen i know when barrett got in he'll be assassinated within six months and he never was i remember when they had um oh gosh several years ago they had this flesh-eating illness even when aids they said everyone was going to know someone that died Mm. of aids in the 80s everyone was panics about AIDS people don't even die of AIDS now but when it all began because I was um, an exercise teacher in the 80s and knew lots of dancers and there was all that stuff about you know everyone's going to get AIDS we're all going to die of AIDS we're all going to know someone who dies of AIDS and this is so terrible and yet it just didn't happen when they had the um, Falklands war or no even when they thought they were having that war when Tony Blair came to power and that war happened, it, it didn't cool. last very long, the Gulf War. And they were saying that everyone was going to be coming back in body bags and the world would never be the same again. And after 9-11, they said that travel would never be the same again. But then we just carry on and human beings are very resilient. And often what you think is going to happen doesn't happen. We spend so much time worrying about what might happen, mm-hmm. which is a real waste of time because then you react as if it's already happened. Well, I listened to a brilliant interview with Kristen Wiig, the actress, and she suffers with, or has suffered with anxiety, and she talked about the fact that um, the problem with anxiety is if you imagine the worst thing happening, and you fear it, and you get (laughs) stressed out about it, 
And then it does happen. Yeah. You've lived it twice. Yeah, of course, you've lived it twice. And then if you don't imagine it and it doesn't happen, it's great. So, mm. you know, why worry about stuff that might never happen? Now, you, you threw something into the conversation a second ago, and I am going to make you go back. You and aerobics instructor. Yeah. Who were you and aerobics instructor? For Jane Fonda. <laughs> it was, well, first of all, at Pineapple in London, Pineapple oh, Studios wow. years ago. I used to work for um, Debbie, Debbie, Debbie. I've forgotten her surname, but she was great. I know exactly who you And then I went to um, work for Jane Fonda, which was also amazing. Over in the States? Yeah, in California, in South Robertson Boulevard. And had a great life. It was great fun in the 80s being an aerobic instructor. I bet. You must have had some very high-cut hearts. Yeah, and fishnet tights cut off at the knee and rolled up. I do remember that. And the hair tied up in rags. And... um, Yeah, it was really cool. But even then, I was so fascinated by the psychology of that. That's how I really got into my job because I noticed that every, at least every third girl was body dysmorphic or exercise compulsive. And um, at the time, I had two flatmates. One was bulimic, one was anorexic. One would freeze grapes and eat them. And the other one would defrost cheesecakes and eat the whole lot in the middle of the night while crying hysterically. And I'm thinking, this is this is not normal. But in West Hollywood, it felt normal. And that's why I studied hypnosis, because I was so interested in the mindset of eating disorders. Mm. You know, Jane was famous for having an eating disorder. And... Um, I think she lived on strawberry yogurts for a long time and Diet Coke. But that that was interesting, too, that all of those women, everything was about how much they weighed, mm. you know, what size they were. And that was the only thing that mattered, and they put so much importance on that. And then, of course, when you spend your life getting weighed and counting calories and being obsessive, it, it goes all goes horribly wrong, whereas people who never count calories will probably end up weighing the same because those people tend to keep losing the same 10 pounds every year then they gain it back and then they lose it and it's really an unhealthy way to live isn't it just um and you've actually you you have books about i can is the book actually called i can you can be thin you can be thin you can be thin yeah and how easy it is because again a diet says okay i'm a diet and I want you to change what you eat. I'm going to take away everything you love. No cake, no ice cream, no mocha, no cappuccino, no chips, no fries. We're going to have salad, and water, and some fruit. But you see, what makes you eat are feelings, especially over it. No one goes, oh, I'm so blissfully happy. I need Pringles. No one ever goes, I've had the worst day of the year. I'm going to grill a bit of trout now and wilt some spinach. They go... <laughs> I need McDonald's, I need Kentucky, I need two tubs of Ben and Jerry's, I need toast and butter and jam. So if we accept that feelings make us overeat, how could a diet ever work? Because it takes away the food that you like, but you still have the same feeling. Oh, I'm bored, stressed and lonely. Normally I get a big bag of popcorn, now I've got some carrot sticks and an apple. It doesn't feel the same. And it doesn't feel the same because when you're a baby and ever you're stressed, and babies often are, somebody puts something milky and creamy and mushy in your mouth and you go, oh, wow, that just solved all my problems. I was a bit bored and now I've got love and someone's spooning this stuff into my mouth or giving me a bottle or a breast and suddenly all my needs are met. I'm connected, I'm significant, I'm loved, I'm warm, I'm happy, I'm getting loads of attention. 
And see, the mind remembers that. So whenever you're feeling stressed, it goes, you know what, you need that creamy, milky, fatty mm. stuff. Um, and that's why we think, oh, what can I have? And the idea of um, having a bit of grilled trout would just not even touch the sides. But if someone had apple crumble and custard or toast and butter or pizza or chips with lots of salt our taste receptors when they taste and remember and and we believe they're going to recreate all our feelings of course they don't you have one more i think i'm still a bit i have another one Mm. now i need a packet of chips and it, it doesn't work because you can't change the feeling with food and that's why, again, you have to have a dialogue and go, actually, you know, I, I don't really want macaroni cheese. I love avocado on rye bread. And I really like tuna fish salad with really nice oil. Or I love olives. Um, it's, so I don't eat um, crisps very much because they're really so full of chemicals. But I would eat olives and nuts. I just do these little swaps. Mm. I don't really, I try not to eat cookies, but I'll slice up apples and put peanut butter on them instead. Um, and then I just keep telling my mind, I, I prefer this. This is better. This is nicer. I like this. And we do need to have a bit of naughty food, but you can have what I call naughty food that isn't really naughty. Mm. So, um, like, mashed up avocado on toast would be my naughty food. It's not really naughty because I have it on rye bread, not white bread. Um, but you can't really live that virtuous life. I mean, no slimming world, weight watches, none of those diets work. The Cambridge diet, the, um, I don't know what it's called, lighter life, they all have a huge failure rate, actually 98% failure rate. But then women think, I failed. No, you didn't. Mm. You didn't fail. The diet failed because you are hardwired to remember where sugar is. You know, we were cave people. We were, we were, our body said, I've got a great idea. You're going to go out hunting and gathering every day. You're pretty much going to find root vegetables and maybe some eggs if you're lucky. You might even get to spear a chicken or even uh, antelope on a really good day. Mm. And there's nothing sweet. But sometimes we would find honey, not very much, maybe three times. Yeah, when we found it, our brain would think, I've got to remember where mm-hmm. that honey is. And the next time we wake up and think, I need to go back and get more honey. Because we take what we could, we take it all home, and then we go back for more. We keep going back till all that honey was gone. Until the next time we found it. Or if we were walking past a tree with some ripe pears, we didn't think, well, they've got a lot of fructose. I'll just have half a pear. Our brain went, they'll all be rotted in four days. You need to binge on those pears, eat loads of them, lay down fat. And that's a great idea till the next time you come across a tree full of fruit, especially if you lived in a country like here where there aren't trees full of mangoes and fruit is very seasonal. So all these years later, we wake up and think, I've got chocolate in the fridge. Somebody bought a cake round yesterday. We wake up and think, oh, there's ice cream in the freezer. We keep going back. You know, I used to do that. I'd have like a six pack of penguin business i just have one i think i'll have another one (laughs) i think i might as well eat the last one then they're all gone no one ever says you know i keep going back to my fridge because i've got some celery in the drawer i woke up and i've got peas in the fridge and they're calling my name so we're wired to remember where sugar is and to go back for more does it also represent a kind of rebellion even though it ends up being self-harming well, it's not so much about it. It's your brain will always know where sugar is and always remind you to go back and have more. And because it's wired into you, it's very, very hard to fight that unless you genuinely don't like sugar. 
your brain is also wired that when food's in front of you to make you eat it. Because if you thought, if you're a tribe and someone came up and said, I've just killed a buffalo, I'm not in the mood for buffalo, I think I'll pass. You would never do that because the next day there wasn't any. So our brains also encourage us to eat food when it's in our line of vision. And you can't fight that. You have to work with it by not having food in your line of vision. Like, I would never have dishes of M&Ms on my coffee table any more than an ex-smoker would have packets of Marlboros out there. I mean, people who stop drinking don't have a wine cupboard full of alcohol. They just don't keep it in the house. But people with this trying to stop eating sugar buy it for other people. Or they think, mm. I'll just buy it as a treat and I'll just have one. But that doesn't work. So if you have a problem with it, you've got to not keep it in the house. And then if you have to have sugar because maybe you've got a husband or kids that like it, buy the stuff you hate. Buy the I always used to buy rum and raisin ice cream because I don't like it. I'd always buy salt and vinegar crisps if I was having a little cocktail because I don't like that flavour. But I would never go and buy my favourite, favourite, favourite ice cream and keep it in the house because that's just like torturing yourself. And yet no one teaches us that. And we do torture ourselves, women especially. You know, they go out to eat and they have the bread basket on the table and they look at the menu and they look at all the things they shouldn't have without understanding that, oh, your brain is wired. When you see it, even on a plastic card, you want it. That's why places like EasyJet, they don't have a menu. They have pictures. You open up the back and they're all... And when you see the picture, you think, oh, I need that Kit Kat. I need that panini and hot chocolate with marshmallows. It's why the best restaurants, they don't say, do you want to... They wheel it past you and they show it to you. It's why Sifog, they don't have carrots and lettuce at the show. They have loads and loads of chocolate. Because when you see it, especially when you're captive there, you really want it. Not yeah, but but when you understand your brain, you think, okay, that makes sense, and now I know that I'm going to work around it. So you tell the restaurant not to bring the bread basket, not to show you food. If you have to get something on EasyJet, you go through it very quickly. And go, oh, they've got olives, and you just shut the menu down and don't look at all that stuff, and then it's easier. Because um, it's hardwiring, as you said. So is that tougher to break? Yeah, it, because it is wired, you know, we are wired to survive by binging on food when it's there. And our brain still thinks, well, well Kit Kats, they're really scarce. We don't get those very often. So, you know, you, you can sit at a table where they've got salad and lettuce and vegetables. If someone puts down a box of after eight mints, you think, oh. And you keep, no one keeps going back for another piece of lettuce or another <laughs> bit of cucumber. And even when you're full, when they bring out the cheesecake and the after eight or the box of chocolate, you think, I must have one. Because our brain still says, that's scarce and you might never get it again. You must binge on it. When you go back to the brain again, you know what? I, should be, I sit next to a vending machine. I've sat next to it for 15 years. It's really not scarce but blueberries and avocado mm. maybe a bit of grilled salmon that's scarce so you have to dialogue back and go look brain there's a vending machine right next to my desk it's been there for 15 years it's full of Kit Kats they're not scarce and if you say it with enough conviction your brain will stop telling you to eat them but if you just try to resist them while looking at them it really doesn't work interesting I remember we used to get boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, the big flat oh, yeah. boxes, sent into the magazine I used to work for, 
And as soon as they came in, you know, just a hurt of course. would go over. I would go over, lift open the box and go, walk away and say, they smell better than they taste. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My friend Marcia, who I worked with at the time, just said, now that is a problem. Yeah. But actually, listening to what you're saying now, I was being quite sensitive. Yeah, you were. Yeah, because you said to your mind, they smell good, but they don't taste good. It's like, I'm going to have that for a treat. Your brain never goes, oh, yes, just fill me up with chemicals and fat and mm. sugar and preservatives and mouthwash. It's not a treat for your body. Eating fizzy cola bottles <laughs> and Pringles is not a treat. It actually hates them. So you just have to keep saying, this is not a treat. My body doesn't like it. My body doesn't want it. It's my mind that keeps saying I want it, but I don't really want it. Mm. So you did the right thing. You kept saying it's not a treat. Yeah, they, and they do, they do, well, yeah. in my personal opinion, they do smell better than they taste. Yeah. Um, we've covered the fact about moving things along quickly, and I think in uh, the literature I read, it's rapid transformational therapy, yeah. we call it. Simple steps, and then the bold statement, but I completely believe it, having been sitting here with you, life-changing results. Um, what is it like? I know this is what you do for a living, but what is it like to actually see somebody turn a corner? Well, it is amazing. You know, now I've got my own school and I'm teaching people that RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapists, I'm teaching lots of therapists. I'm also teaching people who were, I've had like air hostesses, police officers, PRs, um, beauty therapists, all kinds of people coming onto my course because they've already got existing people skills and that's the only thing I'm looking for. And then people come up out of the audience and I regress them and, we had this really lovely girl who just couldn't attract love and she was saying that when she was little her dad was never there and he rejected her and he wasn't interested in her and you could see that she felt unlovable and after that session she just changed so dramatically and then she said that when she went home on the train that night a guy sat next to her and asked her for a coffee she said no guys ever on the tube chatted me up in my life and on the same day and he said, I've never done that before, but I just said something about you. And then she said, thought as she was wheeling her trolley around Tesco, and this guy said, I, I know you think this is crazy, but I really would like to talk to you, because she was giving off this air of, I'm so lovable. And she started to date the one in um, that she met in Tesco, and she's still with him. So it's really lovely seeing people change, and, and people change, their confidence grows, their sense of self grows, a lot of their issues, they have like migraines, um, it all changes on my last course. I had two girls who had problems with drinking and I hypnotised them both together and sat in the middle of them and, and cured them both. And they both, it was, it's amazing, I've never had a drink since. Because why it works so well is is that it, 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 it doesn't change the action, it changes the thought that runs it, I need a drink. So one of the girls was saying that she's a single parent when her little boy goes to bed it's like I'm all on my own now that's a punishment I need to drink and I said but that's not a punishment it's a reward there are women who'd love to be at home at night with their baby but they've got to work in factories and shops mm. and it's actually a huge reward and for him too because she was always on her own and she began to see that and so it is amazing what's really amazing is seeing the people on the class get incredible results i've just got one now who's working with someone with tourette syndrome and, and doing amazing work and 
it's really cool seeing how quickly other people can pick up my methods and get exactly the same results and so we get we get letters and emails and texts every day going oh my god I just saw this person and in fact one of my graduates Tina sent me this text and this woman said you know I've woken up today crying to because I've had pain in my back for years and today I woke up and it's not there and as it turned out she was forced to have a, a termination by her husband and the back pain was just all the guilt she felt for years and years because she wanted that baby but she didn't stand up to him and then a lot of people lose a huge amount of weight because that's so often what I call insulation. I'll give you an example. There was a girl on our um, course who was Spanish, and she was saying that when she was 11, she started to develop breasts, and all her friends' dads, who'd been perfectly nice, would start to go, oh, you're looking hot, and you're filling out, and you've got the jiggle factor going on. And at 11, she didn't really know how to handle mm-hmm. that. But she did know that she was really uncomfortable having her friends' dads kind of openly lusting after her. And so she got fat straight away. She got really fat. And, of course, getting really fat, all of those curves disappeared. The jiggle factor disappeared. And she felt safe. And when we she worked that out in the session, it all went away. And then we had another girl. She was even more interesting because she was saying that she could lose weight really easily. She did. But then she always had this terrible drive to put it all back on again. And in her session, she remembered that her dad was hitting her mum and she tried to get in front of them and the dad just tossed her to one side. He was really vicious. And then later she said that the brother was so cowed by this bully of a dad and although he was older, when she went to school, boys would hit her brother and she'd try and get in front of him and they'd go, well, you're just a girl. And they'd again just push her to one side. She must have been seven. And so she had this interest in me, I need to be big. If I was big, I could protect my mum and protect my brother. I need to be big. And she longed and wished to be big. And, of course, she wanted to be tall and strong, but mm-hmm. she became bigger than she ever wanted to be. And it was that belief that every time she was slim, she'd say, yeah, I don't like it. I feel very, very nervous and scared, and I eat loads of cakes until I put it all back on again. And when we uncovered that, she all the weight dropped off and it never came back. Wow. Yeah, so it's really nice to see... You know, one of my clients wrote to me this morning and said, you know, I've never touched chocolate since that session and I've just decorated the Christmas tree and it was always a tradition that I'd have a bar of chocolate and she said, and my mother-in-law came around and we decorated the tree and the bar of chocolate's on the table. I have just got no interest in even looking at it. And it's so weird, I just don't want it ever. And that's from hypnotism? Yeah, that's from hypnosis, yeah. So how, when did that, has that always been a part of your practice? No, when I worked for Jane and I saw all the girls with bulimia and anorexia and body dysmorphia, I thought, wow, this would be really cool to cure them because I work for her, I've got this whole audience. And so I found this amazing hypnotist called Gil Boyne who was a genius and I went, and I was already in L.A., and he was in Burbank, and I went and trained with him, and it was probably one of the best things I ever did in my life. And then I learned hypnosis, and I went back to Jane thinking, well, this is great, I can teach my classes during the day and see clients in the evening. But as it happened, I got so busy, and I couldn't give people follow-on appointments, I was kind of inundated. And so I had to give up the teaching and just stick to straight-out hypnosis. And then I started to work behind the scenes on lots of shows like Big Brother and I'm um, 
I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and super size, super skinny. And so that was really cool because I had my clients, but then I worked a lot on television and then I decided to write some books because I had such a big audience. Mm -hmm. And and then I became a speaker and now it's kind of come full circle and now I teach other people how to be really extraordinary therapists because it's such a great job. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing job. Because your TED Talk has had millions of views. Yeah. Like it's a huge... The one called I'm Enough. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I've got a few, but that that's one everyone loves the most. And psychiatrist said, if you know what, there's someone who wrote on, she wrote on the feed, and she said, I've been a doctor for 20 years, and I learned more, more in 15 minutes listening to that than I learned. Obviously not what she learned in medical, but what she's, the understanding of your mind, so that, that just, you should be teaching that. In fact, I recently did address the Royal College of Medicine, because I am now teaching doctors how to shortcut and get better results by going straight for what it's really all about. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, doctors are amazing, but, you know, if you go to a doctor with a migraine, they look for the medical reason. You know, and I do this thing called role function purpose, and I teach it in all my schools where usually an illness has a role function purpose, a depression, a migraine, an anxiety attack. And when you ask the mind what it is, it will tell you. So I was working with a little boy recently, and I said, you know, darling, I know you have eczema and you have to have the wet bandages put on, but if it was your friend and it wanted to help you, because you can't say role function, purpose of a little kid, and he said, without skipping a beat, yeah, when mummy puts the bandages and the cream on, she doesn't put any cream on that baby. And then, of course, I knew that at some level he'd watched his mother cream and massage a little new baby and thought I want her to do that to me I wish she'd do that to me I want mummy to put cream and lo and behold he got eczema so badly that she have put a lot of cream on him and so it's interesting that sometimes you say things to yourself like I wish I got attention or I wish I got noticed or I wish I got more love and lo and behold you get sick because when you get sick you get a lot of attention mm. And you get a lot of touching, even if it's just the doctors or the nurses. And, you know, I remember working with somebody once who said she couldn't have sex with her husband. And um, he was very upset about it. So she went to the doctor and they put her on Prozac. She said, I still can't have sex, but actually, I don't care now. She couldn't care less. <laughs> so before I felt bad, now I don't care. But when I worked with her, it wasn't depression. It was just this weird belief she had. She was brought up in a cult which is very odd because we always think people get damaged by repressed parents. But her mother was this hippie in Bali and she in, in this cult you had sex with it. Their belief was if God gave you an attractive body, you've got to have sex with any man that asks you to. And, of course, they didn't have doors. They just had panels in these little beach huts and she would hear her mother having sex a lot. And it really repulsed her. And so when she got married, very quickly, she didn't want to have sex because she thought it was revolting. And she's interested because I can't stand having orgasms. I just hate them. I feel so out of control. And so the Prozac didn't help her. It just left her stuck. But in the session, you see, events don't really affect people at all. It's very hard for people to hear that. But it's the meaning you attach and the interpretation and the great thing about my hypnosis is that they go back and see, oh, right, that happened. And I made that meaning of it, that if you have sex, you're not in control and people can take advantage. Or 
if you get sick and someone puts cream on you, then that's how to get attention. I can see why I did that. I don't have to do it anymore. Mm. So that's the first part. Then the second part is kind of renegotiating with the brain. You're going, look, when you were six, sure, you got eczema. It was very useful. But now you're 46, you don't need eczema. It's no longer appropriate or necessary or relevant. And the brain really gets that because, again, it responds to those words and images. And so when you start to dialogue and go, sure, when you were three and you fell over and your mum gave you a cake, it made everything better. You came home from school and said, my friend doesn't like me. Your mum made some cookies. It was wonderful. But if your best friend rang up and said, you know what, my husband's left. The house is being repossessed. I'm going, you wouldn't go, well, make some cookies and then you'll be okay. Or I know... Go and have an ice cream and make everything better. Because when you're three, it makes everything better because mm. your life is so simple. And then we keep doing all that stuff that worked when we were three or five or ten, but it really doesn't work when you're 33. When you... One can join the dots consciously. Yeah, yeah. What is... Is it, is it the hypnosis that um, helps the, the change in... Well, not everybody can join the dots. Some people have no idea why they do what they do. They really don't know. And you should always go back to three scenes and then do what I call detective work, which is looking at, oh, that scene, that scene, and that scene. That's why you do what you do. So a lot of people can't join the dots because they block out stuff or they forget or they'll go, yeah, you know, my dad left and I didn't see him for eight years, but... I, I, I thought that was okay, but now I can see that I felt so rejected and so hurt, and I'm so terrified. Again, I reject every man that comes into my life, but I never knew why. I just thought I'm, that's my personality. I'm difficult. I'm bitchy. I'm mean. And so a lot of them don't join the dots, and even the ones that do, they get it a bit wrong. They go, I do that because of that, and the brain goes, actually, no, you do that because of that. And it's it, people love getting that light bulb moment, that aha moment. Some of them are really simple. So there was a girl on my course, and she had another another one who could not lose weight. She would get bigger, and she said it's just like concrete; it doesn't come off. And in her scene, she was in her bedroom, and she couldn't reach the door handle or the light because it was dark. And she apparently she put her in the room. They had that belief that, you know, kids just let them cry themselves to sleep. And they knew she couldn't reach the door and they knew she couldn't reach the light, but they let her cry all night. And she got this belief that you need to be bigger. I can't get out because I'm small. If I was big, I could open the door. If I was big, I could get the light on. And then when she got a bit bigger, she had an older sister and her parents would send her to bed just when they were sitting down to watch the equivalent of X Factor. But she had to go to bed because she was little. She mm. was the wee one. She was the small one. And she never joined the dots about, oh, my mind really thought that being big solves everything. But it really did in her case. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And then I had another girl who was the opposite. She was tiny, <clears throat> really tiny. And she went back to her own birth and she was stuck in the birth canal. And... um just remembering exactly how this was because my class was fascinating she was in the womb she was stuck and then they got her out and the doctors were saying she's lucky she was so small because we'd have had to break her shoulders normally when you have a breech baby mm-hmm. if they're that stuck we have to break because she was very small that was so lucky we got her out and they used that von and they sucked her out 
And she had this belief that it's dangerous to be big. Mm. And she couldn't get pregnant. She was so tiny. Um, I was not surprised, but she really had this belief that it's really dangerous. And then later she went back to another scene where something had happened. I think her brother was trying to... And she hid in a cupboard and he didn't find her. And she had that same thing. If you're small, you, you can be safe, you can hide, people can't find you. But if you're big, you can't. And then she said that she always had these fears being locked in toilets, stuck in lifts. And she would never lock the door. She wouldn't go in lifts at all. And then she got this real fear that if she was pregnant, she might get stuck. And so even that scene of being stuck in the birth canal had left her with this fear of going into lifts or small cubicles in case she got stuck and couldn't get out. How? And you wouldn't even think that you remembered that? No. Well, she didn't. But it was so interesting because, well, of course, what I do is I make them speak. And I said, what's happening? She said, it's a good job I'm small or I could have died. And so then all the class begin to see it. So I, when I do hypnosis, my clients are very involved in the therapy. And it was really great for her because now she's going to have a baby and be completely normal. And she just couldn't get pregnant because this belief is you've got to be small. Mm. And she believed that if you were big, you could get stuck in a toilet or stuck somewhere. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure you have millions of anecdotes, but I we do. are unfortunately coming towards the end of our time today. Oh yeah, we really are. So before I go, I want to uh, reference, I'm sure, I mean I certainly want to now go on Amazon and order every single one of your books. So um, I'm sure the listeners will also want to know where they can access. Well if you go to Amazon, I'm so lucky I've got an unusual, I mean just put in Marissa Peer books, so it's M-A-R-I-S-A-P-W-E-R books. And there are four, I think there's five, but the best one, there's one called You Can Be Thin, and if you have any kind of issue with food, that will change your life. Somebody wrote to me and said, you know, I bought that book, I lost £100 without even trying. It's got hundreds and hundreds of five-star reviews. We're going, wow, this is amazing. And I think I, I, it got banned from Weight Watchers boards because people kept posting, oh, my God, this book is incredible. Does it, just a quick question. Is it different from other books in that it's not recipes? So, it's no just... recipes, no diets. It just changes your relationship with food and with your body, and it's really easy. It does have a hypnotic CD in it that you listen to, but it's not about dieting. So, And you can still eat chocolate. You can eat anything, but it just takes away the need to binge or eat destructively or eat too much. In fact, you know, babies, when they're in the womb, food's always there, so they never overeat. You can't make them finish food. Mm. And it just reactivates and re-accentuates what you were born with, that belief that, oh, it's always there mm. later. And then the other one, Ultimate Confidence, that's probably perfect for everyone, and that has four different cds that come with it or downloads now one for public speaking one for attracting love so if you want love in your life that's the book to buy and then the other one is called you can be younger and that's all about how to slow down aging and then the fourth one is is about fertility it's about how to get pregnant or make ivf work using your mind we need a bit of sex too but other than that it works wow I'm totally, um, totally blown away because um, in doing the research and just speaking to you, um, I think the thing that for, for me, the takeaway is it's all there. Yeah, you don't have to keep yeah. going out and seeking and looking for some guru. It's you do. Just... You know, when I was at 
school, I thought I was hideous and ugly and stupid, and I was going to be a nanny. I thought that's all I could ever do. And now I look at my life, I've got a beautiful husband, a wonderful child, a great home. I travel all over the world, and I work with amazing rock stars and movie stars, and I never feel awed by them because they're all so unhappy. And I just sit there and think, wow, everything I have is because of hypnosis, because it's such an amazing thing. Well, on one of my notes... Feeling my straight arm. Yeah. In one of my notes, it um, says uh, confidence, when there's an arrow that says, the truth is you can have whatever it is that you want. Anything. And is where we are now in your life, is that everything that you want? Yeah, and even better, you can have it all at the same time, because obviously (laughs) you can't have what you want. And even if you can, you can't have it all. You know, maybe you can have a great job, but then you don't get to see your kids, and that means that they suffer. Or maybe, just maybe, I could be really lucky and have a great job and a husband and kids, but then I'm never going to get to the gym. I'm going to be so stressed. I'm going to be living on coffee. I'm never going to do yoga. So my health will suffer. But in fact, the truth is you can have an amazing career make money you can have an amazing beautiful relationship that lasts forever you have a great relationship with yourself you can have a fit body you can eat better you can be really happy you can love your life you just got to know how to do it and you can have everything and all at the same time too which is really cool isn't it and what a beautiful moment yeah for to end yeah but um thank you so much for, your oh, you're time so welcome. And for being a guest on the beauty podcast it's been absolutely wonderful good Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you would like to get in touch with me, all you have to do is email thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And trust me, I would love to hear from you. If you prefer something a little less formal, you can always DM me on Instagram or Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. Or if you want to speak to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast, then please don't be shy. Just go to the note the note just go to the link in the show notes where you can join the Facebook forum. All you have to do is click the link, answer some questions, agree to the forum rules. And I cannot wait to see you in there so you can join the lively discussion we are having within that group. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one.